All right. And you thought we were done with the book of Acts. No, no, no. We're getting close, closer. But uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 17 tonight, starting in verse 1. So you can go ahead and head that way if you would like. Um, We're seeing in the book of Acts the resistance, if you will. God is pouring out his spirit. And I mean, he is pouring it out everywhere. Whosoever will, that promise that was made, whoever will listen to him, whosoever will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and yield their heart to him will be saved. We're seeing that. And as a result, the enemy is kicking up dust. He is starting to attack. He's doing everything. Now, I'm not saying this is the first time he's attacked. He's been attacking all the way through. But here, we're seeing some major resistance. But, once again, even with the resistance, the gospel continues to spread through the whole earth. As a matter of fact, every time the enemy comes against the apostles and they move to another place, the gospel is simply being preached. So you may run them out of one place or think you're running them out of one place and the gospel's preached there. So the only thing that the enemy is successfully doing is spreading gospel all over the face of the earth. Okay? So even with the persecution that you're going to see tonight, and we'll we'll go back and recap a few things that happened in the past, but you're seeing the gospel being spread and we're going to see a couple of different groups and we're going to see an incident in the preaching of Paul, where he takes, I guess you would say, an object lesson from where he is. Let me say this about Paul. He never misses an opportunity. And I believe that this is, uh, by, by the Spirit of God, I believe that this is God moving upon him, his heart and showing him these opportunities to reach into the hearts and lives of people where they are, that they might hear the good news of Jesus Christ and receive it. So, Whenever we left, Paul and uh, Silas were thrown into prison. They were beaten. You know, Paul being a Roman, they were not even allowed to bind him with fetters. And then they take them and they throw them into prison. They beat them senseless, okay? Then they throw them into prison, into the innermost prison. And you remember that night they did something remarkable, something that is foreign to a lot of us. And that is they began to worship. They began to worship even with their wounds upon their body, even in the pain that they were experiencing, they still began to worship and to pray. And all those who were in prison, the Bible says, heard this, heard them worshiping and exalting God at this time. That is, people, think about it for a minute, not life personally, not Shane Phillips centered. Not that kind of living, but Christ-centered. My existence, and I'm speaking as if I were Paul or Silas, my existence is not for me. My existence is for the glory of God. I was created in his image for his good purposes. We are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. And the life, you think about it, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it's not me who is living, but it's Christ Jesus who now is in control of this vessel. And the life that I now lead, this existence, 
okay, is live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Now, I want to, a lot of times whenever I share things like this, I take a little side note, and I want you to think about this. That does not mean, and some people in the enemy kind of gets our, our thinking twisted here, that does not mean that we don't enjoy life. It doesn't mean that we don't look at the beauty of creation and have family and all those things. We're expected to enjoy those. Those are gifts from God. And God would be highly offended if we did not appreciate and thank him for those things and enjoy them. But what it does mean is that I do not exist for my passions and my desires alone. I exist for the glory of God. And if he should call and even ask for my life, as in the case of the apostles, it belongs to him anyway. God may call you for such a time as this, and I will go ahead and tell you, all of us were planted here for such a time as this. You were chosen by God before the foundation of this world to exist where you are right now for this day and for this age. Not simply to exist, but to be potent, if you will, a change, salt and light in this world. You were chosen to be here. Do not waste that opportunity. Anytime God calls upon you, anytime you have the opportunity to take that sweet smelling savor of Jesus Christ and spread it throughout this world, spread it. It is hard, very hard to despise, hate and reject somebody who loves you. It's very hard to do that. can be done, but you have to fight hair, teeth, and eyeballs to do it. And in this world, people are looking for love, but not just any love. They're looking for his love. They're looking for purpose, but not just any purpose. They're looking for his purpose. Human beings will never achieve, will never become, will never experience what God has chosen for them, the highest good, until they meet that, the author of that life, and that's Jesus Christ. And when you meet him, life changes. It takes on its proper meaning. I didn't say new meaning. I said its proper meaning, its proper purpose. The question is, do we want it? And to walk therein and to be what God desires for us to be and to walk in that light and relationship with him that God wishes for us. Okay, so here they are, they're praising, they're singing, they're loving God, and then, you know, the, the, the angels of God come, they minister as we've seen in another place, but anyway, the shackles fall off of them, the doors open, and they're set free, but nobody escapes. Probably everybody was in awe of the earthquake and everything that was taking place. And of course, you know, the Bible says that the guard that was supposed to keep them securely, that put them in the inner prison, he was going to kill himself. He knew he was dead. All of them had escaped. And Paul says, don't you do it. We're here. And he comes in recognizing the power of God. And people, you know, I'm not trying to have a sermon within a sermon within a sermon. How many of you ever saw the movie Kung Fu with David Carradine when you were coming up? So everybody's familiar with a flashback, right? You know, where he's back in the temple, you know, grasshopper snatched the pebble from my hand. Don't look at me like I got four heads. I know people have seen this. Okay? Well, this is kind of a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. But uh, anyway, so what you're seeing here is God's deliverance of Paul and Silas 
But as a result of their ministry, of their obedience, look at who else is set free. Everybody in the prison is set free. And you say, well, Shane, that's a physical thing. Yes, a spiritual, uh, let me say, a physical experience to show a spiritual reality. You know what we call those? Parables. Parables are an earthly example to convey a heavenly truth. So what you're seeing is a living parable. So these people, everyone set free. And then as a result of that, this guard is now experiencing the blessing of that miracle because he comes in their fear and trembling, not just because the gates were open, but because the Spirit of God is working upon his heart. You say, Shane, how do you know that? Why wasn't it just that he was fearful? No, think about this. There have been many times in the Scripture where people witnessed miracles, but their lives were not changed. What we're seeing is a man bowing down and saying, what must I do to be saved? He's asking the ultimate question. I want what you've got. What you have is real. So, Paul proclaims Christ. Paul and Silas. Silas remembers a prophet. And they're also proclaiming Jesus Christ to him, and he and his family are saved. And then, as you saw, they come in later on and say, okay, we'll set these people free. And Paul said, "Mm mm-mm, you're not just sending me away. He said, I'm a Roman. They were terrified. And said, please, Paul, leave. Don't get us in trouble. Well, one of the problems, if you remember, that, that, that I guess stirred up the crowds, is they said that Paul and Silas were teaching things that were not lawful to be taught in Rome. And we talked about two terms, religio illicitas and religio licitas. In other words, a licit religion or an illicit religion. Christianity was an illicit religion. It wasn't recognized, and therefore they considered them atheists, if you remember what we shared. Yes, Christians were considered atheists in early Rome because they did not worship one of the gods that Rome accepted or venerated or in some way said that they they were legitimized. So, anyway, Paul and Silas wind up being set free. They go back to the house of Lydia. They're, They're out and about, and now they're going to continue ministry. So, in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1, it says, Well, God bless the reading of this word. Praise you, Jesus. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, or Phipolis, as some people might say, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul often started his ministry where people were worshiping the true and the living God or sought to worship the true and the living God to begin his ministry. It says, then Paul was his customer. He went there. He went to them and for three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Is that not interesting? Notice the language there. This isn't just the apostles walking in and with power saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, bam, let's have four or five miracles and everybody turns. No. Miracles in and of themselves save no one. Miracles get the attention of people to hear the gospel. It is the truth of Jesus Christ that saves. Okay? So he's reasoning with them. He's showing that Paul is is not just coming in and saying a few words. He's actually going to their scriptures in the synagogue, showing them from the scriptures. That would be what you and I know as the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament to run over to. He was living it. Okay? So he is sharing with them and convincing them from the word of God that Jesus Christ is. Is Lord. So he's reasoning with them for three Sabbaths. 
Verse 3, it says, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, the anointed one. Now, people, I I know that most of you realize this, but I, I want you to, I guess, take another look, maybe a deeper look at the concept of the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach, okay, the Messiah. When you look at the Old Testament, there is the promise, and we've talked about this, of a prophet like Moses that is to come into the world, a descendant of David that will sit upon the throne of David forever of the increase of his kingdom. There will be no end, okay? Now, this one that was supposed to come is referred to as an anointed one or the anointed one. So whenever you hear in the scriptures, you will hear the Jews readily speak of a Messiah looking for the Messiah. Today, they still look for that Messiah. And whenever you hear that term, you and I, we just kind of dismiss it because we already know about Jesus. But understand, they are looking for this one, okay, who has been absolutely immersed, anointed, in the spirit of the living God. They are speaking of Christ. Understand today, we we take some anointing oil, we rub it on our heads, and that's fine. As a symbol and a sign, and with the admonition of Scripture or the command of Scripture that we're supposed to do this. But when kings were anointed in the Old Testament, that's not how it was done. You had a horn of oil, you dumped it on them, it poured all over. And the reason why they did that is it was a sign of spiritually what was happening by the power of, of the Holy Spirit, that God was immersing and anointing and pouring upon this one. And the Bible tells us in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus himself, the Spirit was given to him without measure. And I'll tell you another reason, because he is God, wrapped up in the flesh. So they're telling them, and and I'm not trying to belabor this point too much, but for you Bible scholars out there, you'll understand where I'm going with this. The Jewish mindset was that Jesus Christ, however wonderful and however great he may be, he could not be the anointed one because of the way he died. If nothing else, if you didn't believe anything else about him, or let's say you accepted everything that was said about him, up to that point, they would have been fine. But whenever you kill him on a tree, we can't have that. Why? Because the scripture says cursed, cursed by God. He is anathema, if you will, but he's cursed by God is everyone who is hung on a tree. That death symbolized a curse. Jesus became a curse, and therefore they say there is no way that he could be. But understand, many more have understood. Many Jews have come to understand what that curse upon the tree really means. That Jesus Christ was not accursed in the sense that God hated him and cast him away or that God was refusing him, but that Jesus Christ became a curse for you and me. He dies in our place. So in essence, when God put him on the tree, the condemnation that was coming to you and me, that we deserve, we deserve to be rejected. We deserve to be nailed to that tree. And the Son of God is nailed to it, and he is condemned in our place. The whole reason that you and I are forgiven. 
He bore the sin. He bore the guilt. He becomes the curse. The wrath of God abides upon him so that it doesn't rest upon us. But the Bible says that he, God would not allow his Holy One, his Son, to see corruption. That is, his body would not decay. But three days later, sorry, fingers don't work like they used to. Three days later, some might have thought that was four and a half years. I don't, I mean, three and a half years. Or three and a, I'm going to shut up now. Moving on, three and a half. So Christ was going to be in the tomb for three days and then be resurrected. So whenever we hear that Paul is proclaiming to them, he's trying to help them understand that Christ must suffer. This had to happen. There was no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, that he was the Passover lamb, that he died in the place, and that all that God had promised, all that the prophets had foretold are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So now it takes on, whoo, wait a minute, Jesus now becomes the ultimate, the Son of God, the propitiation dying in our place, the Lamb of the living God that takes the sin away from the world. Okay. The Christ had to suffer and rise again on the third day and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is, he is the anointed one, he is the Christ, he is that prophet like Moses. Okay, God bless. Verse 4, it says, and some of them were persuaded. So people are listening. And it says a great multitude of devout Greeks. These would have been um, Greeks that had accepted the, the Lord God, the preaching, if you would say, the law of Moses, the preaching. They would have been converts to Judaism. It says many of the multitude of the Greeks, and it says not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. They believed. So people are turning to Jesus Christ in Thessalonica. And by the way, yes, that's why these books written to the Thessalonians are written, you know, to follow up on these churches. Okay, now we're going to hear about a man named Jason. Who is Jason? We don't exactly know. Jason just kind of appears. He was a believer. He, he, he listens to the apostles, and he's taking care of them, very similar to Lydia, okay? But anyway, verse 5, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded... Becoming envious, some of your Bible translations may be a little different there depending upon which one you're reading. Becoming envious may not be there or it may say something different. It says who were not persuaded. The reason being is in the Greek manuscripts that are there, they both contain the same meaning, but they say it a little differently, okay? Same, same principle is there, just say it a little differently. But it said the Jews who were not persuaded, that is those who were, would not listen to Paul, they became envious and they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set, it says, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Okay, let me say this a different way. You know what they did? They found a bunch of thugs. Don't get angry at me for using that term. That's pretty much the term that they're using. So they go out there and they find these non-law-abiding citizens and say, come help us drag these people off. We're going to get rid of them. So they get them together. They get the city in an uproar. They're spreading rumors, lies, all this kind of stuff, and they're going to get them. Well, they found out that Paul and Silas were staying with a fellow named Jason, so they go to his house. Okay? Verse 6, it says, But when they did not find them, they were not there at the time, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren of the rulers of the city, crying out, um, These... 
Now, I've got this emphasized here because I want to draw this out. So they go and get Jason. They bring them out. And they said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Now, people, that's, I understand what they're saying, but think about what this implies of everybody else. They're trying to say, oh, well, these people that are disturbing the world are now here in our city. We need to get rid of them. But catch what's being said at the same time. These people are preaching a message that is changing the world. People by masses are coming to Jesus Christ. They may not like it, but that's exactly what they're saying. These people are preaching a message that is changing the world. Beautiful if you think about it. Okay, verse 7, it says, Jason has harbored them, and these are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. That would be because it's an illicit religion, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Think about that. They're saying it in a negative sense, but think about the positive sense. Yes, the apostles were going from place to place saying there is another king. As a matter of fact, there is only one king, and that king is Jesus Christ. That's who they're proclaiming. All right. Verse 8, it says, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. Basically, they told them, they said, You need to put up some sort of bail money so that we can let you go. So they were going to charge them. That's what they were going to do. Okay, so Paul has been kind of taken away. He's going to another place. He's left Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And now he is going to the Bereans. Now, many of you have probably heard about Berean churches out there, titles Berean in a lot of different areas. But there's a reason why. There's even Berean study groups. There's Berean schools that are out there. They go by this name. And there's a reason for that. And you're going to see this in just a minute because these people respond to the gospel differently. So let's take a look at it. It says, Then the brethren, verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. You see this pattern going into the Jews. But listen to what it says here. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. In other words, they were willing to hear. That did not say that they just immediately hopped on the bandwagon. That is not what you see in here. They came into the Jewish synagogue to people that in a lot of places rejected. Some did receive, but many rejected. And they're being pursued by Jews that are rejecting the message of Jesus Christ. But notice the Bereans. It says they were fair-minded. Now catch a little bit more of this. Then those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness. In other words, come, tell us what you have to say. And then they searched the scriptures daily. They go back and say, okay, Paul, what are you saying? Okay, we're going to check it out. And they got their scrolls out, and they sat in their synagogues, and they discussed, and they started saying, hey, what did the prophet say about this? Well, prophet such and such said this. They are reasoning. They're studying the Word of God. And it said they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. In other words, their minds were the way that Christians ought to be in the church today. It is good to see somebody zealous for Jesus Christ. It is good for people to come and to share truths and maybe even things that God gives us an intimate understanding of because 
of whether it be revelation or whether it be through the experiences of life, that's good. But we still weigh everything that is taught to us by the Word of God. The Word of God is our final standard. Thus saith the Lord, like Paul said, if someone comes to you preaching another gospel, so-called gospel, other than what I've preached to you, if they're telling you something other than what I've shared with you, let them be accursed. Paul even said, I don't care his words. This isn't me, I guess you'd say, adding emphasis to it. I want you to catch it. He said, I don't care if an angel, if an angel comes down from heaven, there's a bright light from heaven, and he stands in front of you in his majesty, and he looks at you and he says, Paul told you something wrong. Paul says, don't you listen to him. Let that person be accursed. Let that angel be accursed. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Paul says, what I'm teaching you is the truth, and there's not an angel in heaven that will tell you otherwise, so if you hear something else, it's not from that direction. So what did they do? They began searching as we should begin searching and studying. If you hear something, if I say something, people, and you think, you're mm, not sure about that, come to me and talk to me about it. Please understand as pastors, there's only so much that can be said within a 30 to 45 minute period. And you can't cover everything. And you come in one day and you hear one message. You're going to think, boy, this fellow's kind of harsh on this situation. you got to hear it all. I remember whenever we started going to Trinity Baptist Church, Pastor A.B. Copley, one of the greatest pastors I've ever said on. Man as knowledgeable, as straight as an arrow. Love him. Love that man. First time I heard him, I was like, wait a minute, this fellow's preaching some kind of Calvinist weird stuff. And my brother just sitting over there soaking it in, and I was listening to him, listening to him. After about three sermons, I found it. See, I'm doing it that way. Now I don't have three and a half, you know. But anyway, three, after about three to four sermons, we were back there about a month. Oh, I was in love with the guy. Because you can't just walk in on the second act and expect to understand what the play was all about. And so many times, if you hear me preaching, you're like, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure about that. Sit down with me. Talk to me. A couple of things could have happened. One, you might have misunderstood. Two, you might teach me something, and I'm like, wait a minute. You're right. I'm not above being taught. Or three, I just might have been wrong. Did your pastor say that, that he can be wrong? Yes, I can be wrong. I have made mistakes in my preaching and teaching. I've had to go back. There are times that our minds just are not as clear as they should be. And there are times that we might have read something in another book and said it in another. Sometimes we'll get names mixed up. Freddie Gage, the underworld evangelist, the one that came out of the mob, one of his first messages, are you ready for this, was Moses in the lion's den. Now, for those of you who didn't get that, You've been confused before. For those of you who did get it, you'll realize that Moses was not in the lion's den. And people got saved. Pastors make mistakes, okay? You just hope and pray that they're not deceivers. All right, so let's keep going. So they're trying to find out whether these things are so. And it says in verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, the prominent women Greeks, as well as the men, also believed. So we're having converts there. And it says, And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea, there they came to stir up some garbage too. There's another sermon in that, by the way. So those who can, uh, let's see. 
Okay, it says, verse 14, it says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, um, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So they're going to stay behind and help minister. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. Okay, Athens was not the great, let me just say this, the great center of all things at this time when you think about Greece although it still had a lot of its prominence. It's still, as far as its cultural impact of the day, as far as its philosophical, you're thinking about Socrates, Plato, uh, even Aristotle later, later in his life came here. Do not look, like, look at me like I've learned all this stuff. I have books that I have to study too, okay? But that was the center. So you're going to see a lot of the philosophical life uh, here is a center, and that's why Paul ends up preaching the message that he does. Okay. So anyway, he comes to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So now they're coming to Athens. Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. There were several areas um, in the Roman Empire, some cities that you went into, that there were idols basically on every single street corner. I mean, everywhere you look. You know, today, and this is something that I was actually reading about today, because before I come to you and preach to you and share with you, I need to go back and review. I'm reviewing weeks beforehand, but especially the day of, even this afternoon, I'll sit down and I'll say, Shane, did you get this right? Are you following these precepts? Well, a lot of the artwork, and we just look at it as art, and that's fine because it is art. But you look at it and you see all these statues and the different things of Athens or the Greek Empire in general and even some Roman works that are out there. A lot of these things were idols. That's what they were. They were in temples and they were worshipped. We see them as artwork because they're spread out and they do show what was taking place at the time. But in the time of Paul, these things were in temples or they were in areas dedicated for the worship and prayer of these idols. So here he is, he comes to this place and he's seeing all of this stuff that is out there and it grieves his heart. Yes, it may anger his heart, but Paul is legitimately grieved. And think about the heart of an apostle. I mean, here he is, it should be that of a Christian as well. But whenever he saw all these people taken over and the different things that were in their lives, he's grieved. These people are blinded. They think that this is the answer and it's not. They have stumbled, they have missed. And they are very religious, if, if not superstitious, some people say. But they are religious in a lot of senses but they're not religious after understanding. Paul even said that about his own brethren, the Jews. He said, you know, they're very zealous for God, but they don't have the understanding to see, the revelation to understand that all of this finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. All right. So let's keep going here. So his spirit was provoked with, within him whenever he saw that the city was given over to idols. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So wherever he's going, he's sharing Jesus Christ. 
Verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Now, whenever you're looking at Epicurean and you're looking at the Stoic philosopher, Stoic, um, Epicureans, we think of pleasure, we think about enjoying life, but what they did was they said, you know, we're going to live in harmony with nature. We're going to live a life of, we're going to take it as it comes and live in harmony with it and pleasure, not just enjoyable pleasure but tranquility of life is the highest good whenever you're looking no excuse me the yeah the epicureans had that the stoics i keep saying it backwards pleasure tranquility are going to be the epicureans the stoics are going to be those that say we need to live in harmony with nature okay so kind of two different factions there but they are philosophers and they encounter paul and it says, and some said, what does this babbler? Now understand what they're saying there. Babbler means exactly what you think it means. They're not impressed with Paul. They hear Paul, some of the things that he's saying, but they don't see Paul as being refined. They don't see him as understanding the wisdom of the age. Paul somehow, way, has not come full circle. He doesn't understand what they truly understand deeply understand is what they're thinking in their minds so whenever they hear a little bit of what they say they call him a babbler now that term babbler there actually means seed picker a person that goes around and picks up little bits from here and little bits from there some people have even said and this comes from ff bruce a scholar so don't don't think that i'm just making this up uh he even uses the term i wrote it here he says that of a gutter sparrow in other words a bird picking up garbage Okay, so that's how they felt about Paul. So they're saying, you know, what is this babbler trying to say? Another said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus. Now notice Jesus and the resurrection. So they decided they want to hear him. So let's take a look at this a little further. It says, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus, whenever you have heard about the Mars Hill sermon, that's what it's talking about. Airy meaning Aries. So we can call it the Hill of Aries or in Roman, if I'm not mistaken, the Roman dialect, that would be Mars Hill. So they bring him to the Areopagus where they would discuss these things saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time and nothing else uh, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They spent their time just wanting to talk and share new ideas. All right. So Paul says, okay, we'll do that. Then Paul, now notice this opportunity that has been given to him and how he pursues it. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. That's a nice way to say you are steeped in idolatry. <laughs> okay? So he tells them that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now, over the years, scholars have dissected this, and they have said a lot of different things about it. They have said, well, many places, even Egyptians and whether it be in other corners of the earth, uh, even in Asian cultures, they would say that there were altars to an unknown deity, an unknown G, little g, God. 
And they would try to say, well, that was just a customary thing. But, but, but Bruce and several others don't see it that way. They say it probably means exactly what it says. And I tend to agree with that too. What Paul did was he walked through and he says, there are deities for everything. And what they've done is that, you know, if we've left one out, we might want to make sure that we cover it. So you have an altar to an unknown God. And then Paul says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, he said, I'm going to proclaim him to you right now. So he takes this opportunity and listen to what Paul says. Verse 24, God, capital G, God, who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all and breath to all. He gives life to all things. 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has to come, determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord. Notice, all of this has been set up. And I'm not trying to go too far afield theologically here, but I want you to think about this. This is a divine and beautiful principle that life for humanity, for mankind, is so orchestrated that we will turn and look to God. We think that it is the opposite. We think that everything here has played out in the enemy, and yes, he does try to twist it and pervert it, but that it draws us away. There is a truth to that aspect. But overall, God has so planted us here and places people on the face of the earth in so orchestrated life that we might turn and look to him. People say, why are there struggles and pains and hardships in the world? To remind us this world is not our home and to bring us to God. So that we should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him Though, I love this phrasing, though he is not far from any one of us. He's not far from each one of us. We may think that reaching for him is difficult, but he's not as far as you think he is. For in him we live and move and have our being. In case you were wondering, that is a uh, Greek phrasing. In, in, in we, I would say, in our understanding, in our existence, we live and move and have our being. But who is that in? It's not in their philosophy. It's not in their belief system. It's not in the logos as they would determine the word. It would be in Christ Jesus. For in him we live and move and have our being. So he is appealing to even some of the language that they use. As also some of your, well, it just says it in here, as some of your own poets have said, for we are, here, for we are also his offspring. Verse 29. Therefore, since we, are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these, okay, well, let me pause right there. So what's he saying there? He says, even your philosophers have said that we are the offspring of God. And he said, but if that is true, now we understand that we're created in the image of God. And we are his children through the creation of, um, and I, I don't want to belabor this point, but there is a phrase, it's a Latin phrase, it's called ex 
nihilo, okay? Ex nihilo means out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. He spoke, he willed, it was, okay? So we being created in the image of God by his divine will and purpose, if we recognize that we are the children of God, we ought to also recognize that silver, stone, and wood is not living. And we serve a living God. So therefore, these idols that you worship are nothing. They're a man's devising. Now notice he says in verse 30, he says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all of this by the raising him from the dead. And when they heard, catch this, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. In essence, there were those people that believed that this is all, this is life. We exist and then poof, we're gone. And so when Paul starts talking about life eternal, whenever he starts to talking about a resurrection from the dead, you know, they begin to shut him off. But notice what Paul said. He said, in times past, God understands the frailty of man. He understands our ignorance. That doesn't mean God likes it, but God remembers, as the scripture says, that we are only dust. So God recognizes our frailty. And it says in time past, because of God's mercy, because of his grace, because God is truly good. There were times that he winked at sin. That doesn't, and that's even a scriptural phrase, not mine. There were times that he would let some things go. In other words, not be as exacting upon us because of our weaknesses through our flesh and our weak understanding. But it says because of Jesus Christ, that is no longer an option because now God commands people everywhere to repent. Why? Now let's think about this. It's a good place to end, and I need to stop now, but here's a good place to end. In times past, we may not have understood, but God decided and chose and ordained before the foundation of the world to give his son, Jesus Christ. God has now provided a way of forgiveness for whosoever will. For anyone that will hear, God will forgive our sins by turning and giving our hearts to Jesus Christ. People, there is nothing good enough that we can do to save ourselves, period. If for the rest of your life you were even able to live sinless from here on out, you've still held beforehand. You are tainted. And the fact is, is that no one will. We will always struggle with this flesh in some degree and in some way till the day that we go to meet Christ. And you want to say, uh, well, let me throw this out here as well. Even if it were not a physical action of sin, because of the fall, you will still suffer with the flesh through disease and sickness. This is not your final abode. This is not your final resting place. You will struggle with some aspect of sin in the flesh until the day that you go to be with the Lord. But the beautiful thing is, is that God, because he is so gracious and so loving, provided a way for all people to know, to be forgiven, to be made right, to be made, think of it, holy. And what God says now is in times past, I may have given some leniency here, but nailing my son to the cross and rejecting him, 
That's not an option. He says, my son will be loved and he will be honored. And therefore, in Christ Jesus, God now commands people everywhere, repent and believe the good news. Amen? All right. I'll tell you what, tonight, let's do this. If everyone will please stand just right where you are, because I've, I've run to seven. Surprise. Is there anyone, I tell you what, everybody bow your heads for just a minute. Is there anyone here tonight that just needs special prayer? Wherever you are, do you need special prayer? Anyone? Okay, we've got some that do need special prayer. Is there anybody here tonight that would like to be anointed tonight? Anybody? Okay. Here's the deal. We have several in this place. Everybody, if you'd look at me now, would you join a hand with somebody if you can? If you can, grab a hand. Find somebody, find a hand. Somebody to love. Get used to each other. You're going to be in heaven together. And just in case you're wondering if you've got a problem with somebody, the Lord will make you sit beside them in heaven. <laughs> you know it's true. That'd be my luck. Lord, I don't like that person. Well, good. Sit down beside him and hold his hand. Father, in the name above every name, the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we do not presume upon you, but God, we thank you for loving us and for always, always being there and taking care of us. Father, there are those here tonight that need special prayer. They've lifted up their hands and they say, I need help, God. I need a touch from you. I need grace. So, Father, we join our hearts together and we say, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in your love and in his sacrifice, his shed blood, his death, burial, and his resurrection, that he ever lives to make intercession for us seated at your right hand. Father, please touch these that have lifted up their hands and say that they need a special touch. Help them today and give them grace. Father, we also pray that you would lead this church and that you would guide it, that you would help us, Father, to prosper, not for prosperity's sake, but, Father, that we may reach the world and do greater things for you. May everything in our lives and our hearts be done for your glory. We love you and praise you, God. Keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, love somebody before you leave. You're dismissed.